Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the gospel narrative. This is Gospels Part 55. Last week we went through the entire miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and we saw nuances such as this is continuing to shed light on what the Messianic era, the kingdom, is going to be like through the abundance that Jesus displayed through the loaves and the fish that they were able to use or borrow from the boy that they found. Um, right. And then other details like there's actually potentially way more than 5,000 people there uh, than just what the text says when you include women and children. Um, yeah. And now we're getting ready to go into the next story right after that miracle. Yeah, yeah, it just continues. We're, we're, I mean, we are done with the feeding of the 5,000, but we're nowhere near done with the story as it's being told, so... Let's get into it. Uh, We're going to be starting, let's see, Matthew chapter 14, verses 20 through, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 27, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 50, and John chapter 6, verses 16 to 20. I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. says this, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine this in real life, Samuel? No, it feels like a movie. Right. It's crazy, crazy. But, you know, I mean, from our perspective, this really happened. This is a real thing. So, I don't know. It's kind of cool. I know it probably sounds silly that I pick on this word, but you you heard the word immediately come up in there, right? This just keeps happening. It's Mark's favorite. Yeah, and it, again, I mean, technically the Greek Greek word is very simple, very clear. It just means, you know, now, at, at once, whatever. But we know that when we're reading, a lot of times it's used in a context of more like, and then the next thing that happens is, and then the next thing that happens, right? So I'm just saying, notice that. And, and it's kind of going, going to be important because we're going to see something unusual that happens uh Uh, in the next couple blocks. So we'll we'll see when we get there. But anyway, Jesus sends the disciples away in a boat without him. And you remember, it's it's been late in the day and 
evening and getting dark. It's been doing this for a while now, right? So it's getting dark. So these guys are now going to be on the sea at night. Any chance this is going to go well? (laughs) Doesn't seem to be like a good combination. (laughs) Right. So far, the stories don't make that sound good. But anyway, they're going to go do it. And I have a question for you, Samuel. Do you think they took the 12 baskets with them? Hmm. Seems kind of random. Like, why wouldn't they just send them away with the crowds as they left? Yeah, it's just funny because they went through all that trouble to let us know that they took them up and then you never know what happens to them. It's just weird. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so here they go. They're they're being sent to the other side. And then if you've been paying attention and really looking at your text across the Gospels care- carefully, you're probably going, but wait a second, I'm confused. Where is the other side? And it comes down to, I guess, who you believe. Mark thinks that the other side is going to be Bethsaida. John thinks it's going to be Capernaum. And we've already been talking like, well, weren't we already in the vicinity of Bethsaida? And so Luke, in fact, I think it is the one that had already told us that, the the idea that we were near Bethsaida. And, And Obviously, then, that fits a little better with John's account. If John says that we're going to go to the other side to get to Capernaum, that also fits with everything that is to follow. But, of course, most of what's coming up is John's account, so that kind of makes sense. And here's just another spot, Samuel. That eyewitness testimony, though. What are you going to do with that? I mean, you'd think two cities and Capernaum and Bethsaida. How do you get those two confused? They're Mm -hmm. big parts of the story here, right? I don't know. I I think about it, and I got to tell you, Samuel, all of this confusion about location, it reminds me of the Hakari Indians. Are you familiar with them? No. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm just, real quick. Educate me. Yeah, you know, uh, early United States of America, this this part of, of the North American continent, a lot of Indian tribes, I know I'm probably supposed to call them natives, but we know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to be whatever. A lot of different tribes, and one of them was called the Hikari Indians, and most people don't know anything about them, but here's the thing. They lived out in the plains. There's lots of, uh, well, people that don't live anywhere around there, you, you probably won't know a lot about it. It's just grass, and it, it's tall grass, really tall. In fact, if you've never seen it, I think you'd be surprised. Ease, easily three to four feet in height. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, because the Hakari Indians, the, the thing that like, like the most important aspects about the Hakari Indians is, one, they were a proud, proud people. And number two, they were really short. And so you can imagine now certain times a year they're out moving around doing whatever. And it's like they just disappear from, from the earth. I mean, you, you can't see them anywhere, whatever. So, being a proud people as they were, they came up with this little thing where, and this is so cool, they would walk around in groups, and when they did, they would take turns jumping up in the air and yelling. Now, if you were sort of off to the side, you're watching this third party, if you will, you're watching all this go on, all you would see, you know, off in the distance, these little head popping up here, and a little head popping up there, and a little head popping up there, and they'd all be yelling the same thing. Where the heck are we? Where the heck are we? That's for Michael. Oh, I love that. 
That's that was worth that was worth our time. Well, you got to put stuff in sometimes. But anyway, so here they are. We don't know exactly where they are, but we're going to go with the story that they're leaving from around Bethsaida and they're headed for Capernaum. Okay, so uh, the disciples are heading out, and Jesus is supposed to send the crowd away. And, you know, again, it's that theory of they probably need to get somewhere to sleep for the night or whatever. And I'm sure some of them must have just stayed there. But Jesus himself, he wants to get some alone time. And uh, it even tells us he needs some time in in prayer. He, he needs to spend some time communing with his father. We've seen him do this before. And so he, you know, kind of sneaks away up on the mountain and he prays until dark, I know that seems like it's been coming for a while, but it's actually dark. And interestingly, in the text, it says the mountain or the mountain, if you will. But I haven't heard anybody make any good guesses as to which one, because there's really nothing around there. It's probably just a nearby hill. And so it doesn't mean anything specific, at least as far as I've seen or heard. So anyway, while this is going on, he sends people, he's going up and he's praying and doing all this stuff. Meanwhile, the disciples are out and they're actually really struggling in the boat. They got the wind and the waves against them. And it's not like it's a, a long trip. It's relatively short. And, you know, they've made some good distance from the shore, but they certainly haven't reached their destination yet. And Mark tells us that Jesus saw that they were struggling. A couple things pop into my head there, Samuel. What was it like outside again? Uh, wasn't it? basically pitch black it was dark and so here's jesus first of all he can see really really far possibly miles if you take john's account and it's in the dark so this is pretty amazing and i don't instead, <laughs> instead of god goggles he he's gotten jesus has night vision goggles exactly yeah it's a really weird thing to imagine but I want to show you something, and, and I, I don't know what the writer really meant. I don't think he was trying to express this as some sort of miracle or anything. I think he's just telling the story, whatever. But I want you to remember back to something, Samuel. Remember we go through Genesis, and over and over and over, it says that God saw. And this turns out to be really important, because when we finally get to the story about Eve, then it says, for the first time, someone other than God saw. Eve saw. Mm -hmm. And what we learn from that story is that when God sees, he sees truth. And when humans see, eh, not so much. And so you, you could look at this when it says that Jesus saw that they were struggling. It may not necessarily be that he saw them miles away in the dark struggling on the, the water, or maybe not only that, but it may be that he saw that they were struggling in other ways, you know, like in a, like a spiritual sense or something. Mm -hmm. So we'll see that as we go. It's, it's just kind of a neat thing to point out. I don't know how much it'll mean to you, but whatever. But anyway, here's the, here's the kicker. Jesus starts walking to them on the water. Crazy. But even more crazy, it seems to take quite a while for him to catch up. It had, it had gotten dark. It didn't say anything about a long time. It just said that it had gotten dark. He doesn't catch up to their boat until the fourth watch. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. if you were first century Israel. Now, 
Matthew tells us that they were only about six or seven hundred feet from the shore. But John says that Jesus didn't catch up to them until they had traveled three or four miles. And so we're left trying to paint this image in our head. Did he just hop right in the water right there where he fed the 4,000? That would be 5,000. Thank you very much. So he walked three or four miles on the water? Or did he go ahead and walk on land for a while? And then when he knew he was where they were, he just went that extra six or 700 feet from the shore to get to the, right? It doesn't say, and we don't know. But it's, it's, it's just really interesting. Again, the, the eyewitness testimony, what they're trying to tell us, they're just so different. And you're left trying to paint a, paint a picture on your own. I don't know how much we care about that. I mean, if the dude walked on water for six or 700 feet, is that any less impressive than three or four miles? No, it's impressive nonetheless. Yeah, it's all kind of the same, right? So anyway, then here's something important about Jesus walking on the water. Remember Moses? Oh, yeah. What relationship did he have with water? He walked... Uh, well, he walked through it, kind of. He asked yeah. God to help him part the seas so that they could escape the Egyptians, and they like the, the seas were on either side of them. Yeah. How about Israel when they entered the Promised Land? Did they walk, or what did they do? They walked... Oh, I don't know if I know that one. They walked through the water, the Jordan River. Right, okay. God stopped it up and they walked up. Right. How about Elijah? He hit it with his cloak. He walked through the water. All of the all of the stories so far have been people walking through the water. But Jesus, he walks on it. Now, what other awesome godlike figure can you think of being on the water, Samuel? I'm thinking of Genesis one yet again. There's yeah. the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. Right. And that's it. That's it. And so this is a great example of Jesus being separated from every other human in the scriptures. He is superior. So it's, it's just a cool picture. Super cool picture. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Now, so the disciples, when they see him, they're scared. In fact, terrified. Just like you would be, or I would be, right? Wouldn't that just be freaky? And they, they think it's a ghost. They're crying out. I wish I was there. I want to know what they were saying, right? But Jesus, he lets them know, hey, it's just me. No need to be afraid. But I got, I don't know. I've tried to put myself back in their shoes, back in their boat, I guess you would say. If I'm being honest... That would still be scary. Even if it was like, whew, it's only Jesus, I'd still be a little freaked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's walking on the water. This yeah. is crazy. And I just want to add real quick, I'm not trying to open a can of worms. I just think it's crazy that the Gospels use the word ghost in ah. the part of the narrative. Like, that's just, take that for what you will. That's just really, I did not expect that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and there are a lot of things that we do talk about, whatever, in the modern world that I think are probably, you know, they're a little exaggerated or a little out of bounds or whatever. But if nothing else, and this reminds me back to our interview with Blue Gospel Scripts, 
We just have to recognize, you know what? There really is a spiritual world, a spiritual reality. We can't act like that's not real. We just kind of have to come to grips with what that means, what it looks like, whatever. But yeah, they see, they think it's a ghost. But then this is a cool thing, Samuel. And I don't, well, tell me what you think. Mark says he meant to pass by them. So Jesus is walking along in the war, on the water, and he meant to pass by them. Why would he do that? Now, is it, does pass by mean like purposefully so that they can see him, or pass by in the sense that he w- was trying to like not let them see him? I, that's a really good question, and I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, again, I'm trying to paint this picture in my head, and, you know, I see him sort of just cruising along on the water, and... He's not going to stop. He's not really going to talk to him or whatever. And they notice him. And he's like, hey, guys, just keep working those oars. You know, I'll see you when you get there. Whatever. It's And maybe that's not right. Maybe it's a completely different picture. I don't know. But why does Mark tell us this? It's so weird and so out of And it could mean so many things. But that particular phrase, to pass by them, there are at least a couple Interesting connections back to the Old Testament. And I just want you to just uh, remember these, Sam. Remember uh, Moses. Have we ever talked about him on this podcast before? <laughs> he seems to be kind of an important guy. Yeah, Moses keeps coming up. It's like he's a first Messiah or something. Well, yeah, I know. So Moses, uh, do you remember, this is back in Exodus, just for reference. It's chapter 33, verses 17 through chapter 34, verse 8. But do you remember Moses says, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And God's like, well, no, we can't really do that. (laughs) Yeah, you'll die. But here's what I'll do. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And what does he do? He passes by him. He passes by him. Yeah, the the glory. And there's another one with Elijah. Elijah, he's got so many stories. It's hilarious. But uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 to 13 Elijah gets to experience God passing by. And it's very different because in one instance, it's more like a wind. And then in another instance, it's kind of like an earthquake. And then in another one, it's a still small voice. But again, you see that lingo about passing by. So just very interesting. And again, I don't really know why Mark's including it here, but just little things that we should not read over because there could be some real golden nugget there and, and we just need to keep paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's that. All right. So if we move on, now we're, we're going to catch a little bit from Matthew here. We're still in chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 28 to 31. It says this, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? (laughs) Okay, so Peter, out of everybody else in the boat, 
Peter gets brave. At least, you know, sort of. Now, he seems, interestingly, he seems a little unsure that it really is Jesus, if it is you. But, on the other hand, he chooses what seems like a very trusting kind of a test. If it's really you, well, let me walk on the water too. I mean, that's, that's pretty brave, right? That's, that's trusting. Mm-hmm. Now, we often make fun of Peter, at least the American church. You listen to preachers all over. They seem to kind of, I don't know, they kind of enjoy making a little bit of fun at Peter because he's so impulsive. He's so brash. And it's not that those things aren't true, but come on. The likelihood of any of us doing what we see Peter do right here, super low. True, Samuel? Oh, yeah. Super low. I mean, there's a reason why the text doesn't mention any any, any of the other disciples in this yeah. particular scenario. Like, he had the boldness to like, yeah. put Jesus to the test in terms of, like, his ability to provide in this situation. Yeah, and, and I think it would even be fair to say put himself to the test. Mm-hmm. In some measure. I mean, anyway, the point is we need to give Peter his due. Yeah. Come on, this was an awesome thing. And what's so funny is Peter says this, and I mean, here's Jesus, who who meant to pass by them, by the way. Peter says this, and Jesus just kind of goes with it. Okay, come. <laughs> and so Peter, he probably surprised everyone, probably surprised himself. He gets, now listen, this is important that we see this. He gets out of the boat. And he walked on the water. He didn't just get out and stand there for a second and sink. He walked on the water. He walked all the way to Jesus. Okay, now we don't really know how far that was. Could have been five feet, could have been 50 feet. But he got out of the boat, he walked on the water, he walked all the way to Jesus. It's important to see that. Even fewer of us would have ever done that or made it that far. And again, we need to give Peter his due. I'm not trying to, you know, like build Peter up or anything. I'm just saying, quit picking on the guy. He did a good thing. But then, and this is important. What happened to him, Samuel? He saw. Mm, That's a cool. Remember what we just said? Yeah. God sees and he sees truth. When man sees, he does not see truth. Peter saw that wind and doubt and fear rushed in, you know, kind of like a wind. And then, drat, he started to sink. (laughs) Now, I'm trying to be on Peter's side here. So what was his first thought, Samuel? Turn into his master, like, Rabbi, save me. Yes, Lord, save me. So even in the midst of this, you know, quote unquote, failure of sorts, his first response is still good. He looks to the Lord for salvation. Again, give Peter his due. I want you to, there's a couple of scriptures that fit really well with this, Samuel. You can read them for us. Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Yeah. 
that sounds exactly like what Peter was crying out. He only said, Lord, save me. But same thing. How about Isaiah 41.10? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus did, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. I like that. Now, uh, so Jesus reaches out and he saves him. (laughs) And this, Samuel, this just trips me up. He declares that he, Peter, has little faith. And I don't know, in my head, all I can hear is, what? Yeah. (laughs) This is a real perspective shifter. I mean, if this is little faith, Man, we have got to see just how much room there is for our faith to grow or or become much. And I I don't know, I feel like I have to say it now because I started this. This immediately right here, Jesus immediately reached out his hand. This would be a good one for you to interpret as at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it just, you know, I'm just saying. But anyway, in the end, just quit making fun of Peter. On, on on the big spectrum, he's a lot closer to hero than zero, right? And, and at least when compared to us, and I, we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to one another, I get all that. But still, he, he did good. He, a life lived in faith toward God, this is the example Peter is showing us. A life lived in faith toward God, it's a little risky. Mm-hmm. We've got to be able to, we've got to be willing to take some risks for God, toward God, you know, with God, whatever you want to call that. It's just, that's that's a part of the Christian life. Yeah, I mean, and that concept is present all the way back with the very first patriarch whenever God called Abram. God didn't tell Abram where he was calling him out to. He said, you know, come leave your homeland and I'm going to take you to a place that you've never been before. Yeah. that, That implies risk because... God didn't disclose all of the plan to Abram whenever they had this connection between one another. So, yeah, I totally agree. Um, And then just really quickly, that aspect of Jesus saying, oh, you of little faith and like the perspective shifter, I'm I'm definitely am with you on like it shows us that like how much room there is for us for our faith to grow. But yeah, this is a Baymont discipleship lesson. We can link it in our show notes that you can look on your own time. I think it's episode 116. It's titled She Giggled. Uh, but Marty brings up a like a slightly different take on this lesson. He says, like, what if Peter wasn't doubting Jesus's ability to be present within this, but his like doubt was in himself? Oh, yeah. His own ability to be able to do the thing that God, Jesus, had called him to. Um, And, you know, the text doesn't even say that he was doubting God. Um, Right, right. And Jesus, like, you could imply his statement to be like, Peter, like, why are are you doubting yourself? Like, Like, my father created you good to do good things. Like, trust in that. So that's just a really interesting perspective, and it's worth a listen for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point. I don't think, uh, I think it would be, 
I, I have a lot of difficulty imagining Peter having doubt in Jesus. I think that's right on. I think it's got to be with himself. But mm-hmm. yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good one. All right. Now, this next little bit, this is kind of funny. We're going to read from all of them, Matthew, Mark, and John, because they're all so different. So, it's Matthew 14, 32 to 33, Mark 6, 51 and 52, and John 6, 21. So, Matthew says this, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly. You are the Son of God. Mark writes it this way. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. (laughs) You ought to have giant question marks in your eyes right there, because that's pretty weird, right? Yeah. And then John, John says this, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. (laughs) I know, this is crazy, but at least now you know why I keep harping on the word immediately. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's see what we got here. Jesus and Peter get back in the boat. And, and okay, they are glad to take him in, them in, whatever, whatever. But when he gets in, the wind ceased. Now, this all seems to be pretty consistent across the stories, all right? So, we got that much. Now, they had been fighting this wind all night. And it doesn't say it, but the disciples obviously assume that it was I don't know, Jesus that stopped the wind, or possibly they may be thinking that God stopped it on Jesus's behalf or for Jesus's sake or something like that. And remember, they had seen a similar thing already when they were crossing over to the Decapolis. Mm -hmm. So this isn't new, but the reason I'm saying all that is because in, in Matthew's version, it says that those in the boat, after they saw him walk on the water and calm the wind again, they worshiped him and they declared that he truly was the son of God. That's a big deal. That Mm -hmm. is a very strong title. I mean, this this is all important stuff. So they're, they're seeing what Jesus is doing over and over. And it's like, oh my, Gosh, you really are the son of God. But John, John adds this little bit and says that after he got in the boat, they were immediately at the shore. And now here's another instance where I think that we're supposed to take it immediately as in like right at that very moment or at once or, you know, whatever. And so it's just weird. You you start to get lulled a little bit by the word immediately used over and over. And so you start to lose the sense of what's really happening. And so that's why I've been highlighting it a little bit. This is, I mean, this is like being in a sci-fi movie or something, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, what do they call that? uh, Like temporal displacement or I mean, whatever in a sci-fi movie, you know what I'm talking about. So, so that's like that happened, right? They were it, they were involved in it. Now this is a pretty awesome miracle. To just mention in passing, John just says, and, you know, 
the boat was immediately at the land to which they were going. <laughs> Biblical teleportation. Yeah, it's crazy. But anyway, so those were the normal ones, right? We're all good with that. But Mark, what is Mark trying to do to us here? He's messing with us. He says this. It's almost like he's trying to scold the apostles. Mark is, like writing the story after the fact. Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceases, and they are all astounded. Now, so far, you're probably thinking to yourself, right, makes sense. Why? Yeah, seems good. But Mark seems to be suggesting that they shouldn't have been astounded. Why? What's his reasoning? Because of what they had just witnessed with the loaves and fishes. What this, what this kind of needs to remind us of, let's go back to that story of the loaves and fishes. Samuel, who was it that famously brought bread from heaven? Um, God did. Yeah, and he did it through? Uh, Moses. Right. So Moses, God, this picture, the story of the 5,000, all of that. Okay, so they've just seen that, plus, like every other thing that they've seen all the way through all of these podcasts, there's a lot of hours of podcasts where we've seen Jesus do some stuff, right? And Mark seems to be suggesting that this should have given them sufficient insight into who Jesus really is. And given the context of the stories, the prophet who was to come, the Messiah, the second Moses, all of those things. They should have known who he really is or was and what he was capable of. He he should have had authority over nature, over chaos, all of those things. They've witnessed it. They should have known. So Mark equates all of them, the, 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 the apostles, the disciples in the boat, he equates them with Pharaoh, the most famous hard-hearted man in the Bible. At least, that's the connection I'm making. <laughs> if they're talking about hard hearts, who do you think of? Pharaoh, right? They're witnessing all this stuff, but they aren't really accepting the fullness of who and what he must be. And this is important. Because the story is building toward something. So I had to really highlight this here. This whole thing about them being hard-hearted, Mark's going to come back to this very, sta- very same theme. Even It's, it's actually even going to involve bread uh, close by. Uh, back in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. You can check it out early if you want, but we're going to get there soon. But just an amazing picture. I, this whole thing just... Wow. Yeah. This story is getting full, rich, intense. Now, I want to ask really quickly I'm not uh, bringing into question the, inspir- the inspiration of the text from God through these people, um, sure. the disciples who wrote these narrative accounts of Jesus. But how should we take Mark's interpretation of his fellow disciples in this moment? Because I don't know. I just leave that, especially that tidbit with him equating them with Pharaoh, to, to feel kind of harsh upon first glance. Just, just in the sense of my understanding of Jewish culture, like uh, Zadoki or righteous men were doing miracles to some degree within 
Jewish culture. Like it wasn't, it's not like Jesus wasn't the only person that the nation witnessed doing miracles. There were people right. before him and after him who did miraculous things. So like I kind of used that to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, yeah, they've seen all this amazing stuff, but then they're like just that human internal wrestling of, I mean, is he, is Jesus like, is he really the guy or is he going to be like these other people that said they were going to be the Messiah and then they did something crazy and fell off the map and it was all just a big lie? I, I don't know. I I try really hard in every circumstance to give the disciples the benefit of the doubt, but I don't know in this scenario yeah. whether we should or not. No, 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 no. I think I think what you're doing is is awesome and wonderful and good. We we should be trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, and and that doesn't go just for the disciples. That goes for all people all the time. That's just a a good way to look toward your fellow man. But I I think what we're seeing here, and I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, we're trying to go through chronologically, and so we're trying to line up these four Gospels in every way that we can and look across them and then through time. If you were to instead go through each gospel individually, you can't really count on it being in time order. And so when you read each gospel individually, you're going to be looking for what are the themes? What's the storyline doing? How is the plot progressing? And when you do that, each of these gospels is going to have a very unique personality and tell a very different story. And so what you're seeing right here from Mark, all of the Gospels are going to kind of get to this same point, and it has to do with Peter's confession and, you know, around the time the the transfiguration and all that. But Mark, more than any of them, is trying to build toward that moment. And so he is purposely highlighting the fact that these guys— They've seen all this stuff, and you heard it there. Truly, he is the Son of God. And yet Mark is going, but their hearts are hard. There's still something holding them back. There's still doubt. There's still resistance. There's still something. And so Mark is highlighting that for us. And you're right. It seems a little weird or a little harsh here, but it is going to come to a good uh, conclusion. Okay. Not too far away. So your instincts are right. Your question is perfect and awesome, but it's just going to take us a little time to get there and see it. Dang. Cliffhanger, yeah. man. Yeah. Which just makes the story that much better, right? Yeah. Turn the page. I want to know what happens. Yeah, it's good. So yeah. Sorry, I'm not actually answering your question, but I gave you some hints. You know what's yeah, going on. You're, yeah. You're giving me positive momentum towards the That's answer. Right. That's right. <laughs> All right, so let's keep going. Uh, I think it may be starting now or very soon. I think this is where we begin. Um, we're going to pretty much focus on John. So as you can imagine, as it did in the past, it's probably going to go really slow, but let's find out. <laughs> we're in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 25, and it says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Such great storytelling. I feel I feel like with with John's account, every time that we go into his section, we just need to like say this catchphrase like things are about to get a little weird. Yeah, that's right. He man, he looks at the world differently and tells it to us differently. It's so good. So all right, so let's let's try and get this straight. It's the next morning. We're okay, now we're back in the vicinity of Bethsaida where the feeding of the five thousand occurred. And so part of that same crowd, uh, they had eaten the loaves and the fish. They were taking account of the scene and they, they've determined, all right, Jesus is no longer here. He's gone. And they knew that he didn't have a boat because they saw him send the disciples away in the only boat that was there. And then somehow, I think I find this amazing, they figure out or guess, maybe is probably more likely, that he's gone to Capernaum. And now as we've been walking through the story, we might think, well, you know, that's kind of reasonable. It's Jesus's home base, right? A lot of the story takes place there. It was within walking distance. Okay, now for us, we might think of it as a nice long walk, but, you know, our standards anyway, but it's kind of amazing that this crowd who could very much be people who aren't even from around there because it's Passover time, Somehow they knew or guessed that that's where he was going to go. It's just kind of amazing. But anyway, where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, when we talk about this story, we just call it the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, that everybody knows it as that. But John calls it where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. <laughs> Why does he refer to it that way? That's so eloquent. Yeah, he's placing the emphasis on the fact that Jesus was giving thanks, as if somehow this giving thanks was, I don't know, the motive force behind this great miracle or something. But, and I don't know that I can explain it, but maybe there's, you know, a good life lesson in here. We need to look more to the source of the miracle than the miracle itself. So, expectant, thankful trust in the one who is able to do all things. Jesus is that person. He was expectant. He was thankful. He trusted in what God was able to do. And let's just say through the Holy Spirit in him, because we keep saying that Jesus is walking fully as a man, but the Spirit is, you know, working in him, right? And so so you've got that side of it, and it's it also seems to be John's way of emphasizing this image of the banquet, because we talked about, even though it's not a direct command in the Torah, it had become common cultural practice. You blessed God for the food before you ate. And so, I don't know, it's just that reminder of the messianic age, the messianic banquet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that John, he just got a weird way. And then, okay, so so while they've been looking around for Jesus, other boats have been arising. 
That would be arriving. Thank you very much. From Tiberius. And okay, these people decide they're going to use those boats to get to Capernaum ASAP. Now, okay, we try to understand a little bit about this first century culture, but I'm not exactly sure how this one works out. How do the boat owners fit into all this? I mean, were the people just saying, hey, uh, take us to Capernaum or, you know, we'll pay you if you take us to Capernaum. I, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, did the people who were there, uh, did they just take the boats? <laughs> hey, we'll bring them back when we're done. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, we don't really know, but it's, <laughs> it's a weird image. But they're going to take those boats and they're going to go to Capernaum. And, and, and they do. They get there. They find Jesus and Samuel. When did you come here? Is it just me, or does that sound like a funny question? Yeah, I left the reading of that text scratching my head. Yeah, I mean, you know that it was somewhere between last night when you fell asleep and this morning when you got up. At least you know that much. But if I was there, and I'm just I'm trying to pull it into my modern English, I would have been more interested in how did you get here? But that's just me. But either way, it's kind of weird. Maybe when they said when, maybe it was just a matter of them being surprised that he beat them there. But in the end, it kind of doesn't matter. When did you get here? How did you get here? Why did you come? I don't know. Any of those things. It doesn't really matter all that much. We know what they're saying. We get the gist of what it is they're trying to say. They're surprised that he's there. Mm -hmm. But then Jesus answers them this way, continuing in John chapter 6, verses 26 through 29. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I think we're about to get under some people's skin, Samuel. Rolling up the sleeves. Let's go. Can you, yeah. Can you feel it coming? A little bit. All right. So Jesus, number one, he doesn't mince words. He sees behind their question, and, uh, you know, we could even call this their passionate pursuit of him, and he says, look, you're not really seeking after me, you know, as in, like, you know who I am and what I represent, and and you really want to be a part of this. No. What you really care about is what I can do do for you. Now, in this context, he's talking about you ate your fill of the loaves, but you're not seeking me for my sake, for who I am. You're seeking me for what I can do for you. It's not because you saw signs of the coming kingdom and and you 
wholeheartedly want to be a part. You want to seek that kingdom. You just want to fill your bellies. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to really let that sink in. We need to examine ourselves. How do we really treat God? How do we treat his Messiah? How do we treat our salvation? Is it, is it more about what we can do in response to him and what he has done? Or is it more about what we think he can do for us? Yeah, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been guilty of being these crowds at certain times or another. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a real come-to-Jesus moment, if we could steal that phrase. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it goes back to that whole, like, concept of studying Torah in order to, like, pursue and perform the mitzvot, and then there's that other rabbinic concept of studying Torah for its own sake. So in this yeah. case, it's like, are you pursuing God because of the A leads to B system, or are you pursuing God because of who he is and like yada, like wanting to know him more in relationship? Yeah, uh, super famous sort of saying in the Jewish tradition. Why do we story? Why do we study Torah? That we may do mm. Torah. Obviously, learning must be a part of it, but that cannot be the end goal. You study it so that you may do it. It's just good. Anyway, he he tells them you saw signs. So Jesus himself is calling the feeding of the five thousand a sign. It's kind of cool, and you never know. The fact that he's bringing this up, calling it a sign, that may uh, sort of be the very thing that reminds them of the manna in the wilderness, if they hadn't thought of that already. And, and one of the expectations of Messiah was that he would restore the heavenly manna. Now, why are we talking about this right here? Because this is going to figure prominently As we continue in this story, it's a big deal. But Jesus is calling it a sign, should remind us of the manna in the wilderness. So there you go. He also mentions food that perishes. And I mean, just for clarity, this this is just ordinary food. The stuff that we eat every day, uh, assuming that we're fortunate enough to eat every day. Uh, It sustains life, Samuel, but for how long? Uh, A day at most. Yeah, it's a short time. It's a short time. If you ate once and then didn't eat anymore, boom, you're dead. Mm -hmm. Jesus, okay, he's referring back to the actual loaves and fishes that they experienced, you know, last night. But then he talks about food that endures to eternal life. And this, I think, should make us think back to something that Jesus said to his disciples at the well in Samaria. I would ask you to just remember it, Samuel, but instead I'm going to have you read it. Okay. John chapter 4, verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Ah. Food that endures to eternal life. We're talking about that same food. This is food that sustains life eternally. 
Now, we're going to talk about that more below, but here's the crazy thing. The crowd seems to know what he's talking about. And this food that endures to eternal life, he says that the Son of Man will give this to you. The Messiah is going to be the provider of this eternal life. And it is for those who actually seek it. You know, the food that endures, eternal life. Those who actually seek it. And one final thing he says is that God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, there's another really relevant, it's a long-standing sort of Jewish traditional phrase. It, it was very simple. It said, the seal of God is truth. And, and so, the, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and in this case, we know it's Jesus, he carries or displays the Father's seal. He is authentic. He represents truth. Everything about his thoughts, his words, his actions reveal or demonstrate God's truth. And we could even say as the Messiah, as he is in some sense the apostle of God. And so as we talked about apostles before, it's as if, you know, on his mission here, it's as if he is God himself. Now, okay, I get it. Most of us believe in this general idea of the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is God. I, I get all that. I'm just saying, as, as an apostle, he's walking around on this mission as if he is God himself. So the miracle of the loaves and fishes, they're a clear sign, and it acts as the seal of God. All of the signs do. And I think we've mentioned this before. Uh, if you're if you're trying to get an image in your head, what does it mean to be a seal? And and the, like the easiest example from our history would be like the wax seal that they used to put on private letters. You've probably mm-hmm. seen it in movies and that kind of stuff. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. It 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 proves authenticity. It's untainted, especially within like a kingship, because the, oftentimes yeah. a king would have a signet ring of his crest or whatever that he would place into the wax on whatever note that he was sending out to whoever and if they saw that wax seal they knew oh that's actually from the king exactly yeah exactly so jesus you know that this is his seal but i got to get back to this idea about this food that endures to eternal life now let listen to how this is worded again verse 27 it says do not work for the food that perishes. And then I'm going to I'm going to interpolate. Okay? But instead work for the food that endures to eternal life. So Jesus is telling them that they're they're working for one thing and they should be working for another thing. And they get it, they hear it. And their question is, well what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus, you know, he's saying, okay, don't focus so much about working for your common food. That was a very real issue in first century Israel for many, many people. So, you know, we have to take that in, in proper perspective. But work instead for the food that endures to life. It's metaphor and 
you know, so they, you can see it in the people, they've somehow made the translation in their head that this better food, the way they put it was, the better food is to to be doing the works of God. And they're absolutely right. No work, we all know this, no work that we can perform will result in eternal life. Jesus did that. It's the Son of Man who gives eternal life. But we still have a response or a requirement or a responsibility to live doing the works of God. We've said it before. You actually have to be on team God. And and then, you know, I mean, if, if he hadn't already said it, your question would be, well, what is the work of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. He states it very simply. You have to believe in the one that God sent, his Messiah. And this is, it's kind of a little pet peeve for me, so forgive me, but I got to say it. This isn't just believing the way that we might believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. It's not something that just happens in your head. It's not something passive. This is to believe in the one that God sent is to accept that God has indeed provided for salvation through this Messiah as he is long promised. And then, accepting that, acknowledging that, believing that, then living a life that is commensurate with that, living a life that demonstrates that acceptance. It's following his instructions. It's placing his will above our own. It's being the conduit of justice and mercy and compassion from God to mankind as he is instructed in his Torah. It isn't just a mental faith, uh, a mental thing. It is faith plus faithfulness. And Jesus, he's going to continue trying to explain this, but sadly for the listener it's not going to be today. <laughs> Man, you were in the business of cliffhangers this week. Apparently. Um, yeah, and I wonder, this is me reading into the text a little bit, but whenever I was listening to you going through this passage and the people asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like me having a little bit of previous knowledge about their understanding and their relationship with the Torah being the works of God in action. Like, that question almost kind of feels weird to me coming from that perspective on their part. And so I wonder if there was, if they were like implying in some way within this question to be like, like Jesus, like we know that Torah, that's the work of God. So like what, what must we be doing besides that? And then yeah. that's where Jesus is saying, like, ah, but, like, I, if, if you're seeking after Torah, what you're really seeking after is me, because, like, I am Torah made yeah. flesh. And that, that you know, his response of saying, like, believing him who sent me, that that is, in a sense, accepting Torah through his life and his demonstration and everything. So I know that was a little bit of a creative interpretation, but it's just... There has to be some acknowledgement, at least from the Jewish perspective, that the works of God 
include Tora and that yeah. uh, there had to be some type of potential dynamic going on there. No, I think you're absolutely right. And and it even it even opens the door to uh yeah. You know that it's supposed to be Torah, but you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple question and a very simple answer. And, you know, in some sense, you could imagine them going, but we already knew that. Yeah, yeah, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's different to hear it or think it or say it or talk about it than it is to, to do it. Yeah. You know? I don't know, but I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I, I think that's a, it's a, it's good. And, and I, I just encourage people wrestle with these things. Go ahead and, and paint some scenarios in your head, you know, be cautious and don't go getting weird or anything, but it's okay. You know, sort of massage the text and, and, and contemplate on it whatever i think it's good to ask those kind of yeah, questions it's and see contemporary midrash is what it is exactly i also just wanted to say really quickly before we head out i'm getting some vibes from jesus that also are very reminiscent of his statements earlier about don't store your tre- don't store treasures in on earth at all you know decay yeah. from rust and moth but store treasures for you up in heaven that will last um, yeah. And then combining that with his Sermon on the Mount portion about anxiety, saying, like, why are you worrying or why are you focused on things right. like food or clothes that should be an understood as an, an assumption that God is going to provide because of how he relates to the created world? So, I don't know, it, it all seems tied together with... In, in a maybe a basic sense, Jesus trying to continue that theme to these people, like your focus is on things that you should already know that God is going to take care of. You need to be focusing on things that actually have a legacy and that are going to live on beyond the food that I'm giving you on a mountainside. Like that's what's going to bring the kingdom onto earth is that you are pursuing yes. the things that are eternal. So I just wanted yeah. to bring that up real quick. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's like if 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 you will trust him enough to focus on this stuff over here, then you can trust that he knows that you need those things. That that's the it's, I don't know, it's good. Whew, Samuel, this is good stuff. Yeah. I don't know if anybody listening is having as much fun as I am, but this is just a blast. Yeah. We still should let them go though. They have lives. I know. It's it's a it's a good cliffhanger to yeah, to leave right. right now. So Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you like to get a hold of us, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.